wonder if you've ever been in a conversation where you find yourself loudly expressing your opinions on a subject, only to find that you're speaking to an expert. It's an embarrassing scenario, realizing you really don't know anything, and you should have been listening rather than talking, learning rather than teaching. This is an embarrassing situation, and in this world, the kinds of consequences for these conversations aren't usually greater than simply hurt pride or hard memories. But imagine doing this, not with some human expert, but imagine doing this with God. In the book of Job... Uh, The real-life man, Job, after experiencing unbelievable suffering and pain, at the hand of Satan, under the sovereign control of God, receives added suffering and pain in the form of three friends who come and accuse him of some sin or wrongdoing and begin pointing the finger at him and accusing him and telling him there must be some secret sin that has caused God to bring all of this suffering on him. You remember the scene, right? And Job begins to defend himself and say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm not guilty of some great secret sin. And eventually, as the conversation continues and the friends continue their attacks, out of exasperation, Job begins to not only defend himself against the charge of great secret sin, but even to begin to judge God to begin to consider that God had actually done something wrong. Job begins to dream of a day in court where he could finally stand and defend himself before God and prove that he didn't deserve these things. Imagine believing that you could be in a position of judging God. And then Job gets his wish And at the end of this conversation, God shows up. And rather than Job being in a position to judge God, Job is judged by God. In Job 38, God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Imagine finding yourself in such a position of believing you have a case and can judge someone only to find out that the person you're judging is God himself, that the tables are completely turned, that you've had everything backwards. Job ends up saying to God, I cover my hand with my mouth. Woe is me. I spoke of things that I did not understand. And in repentance, God forgives him of his pride. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, and we're going to work our way through chapter 6 and verse 16. The interesting thing about the context in in our passage this morning is that God has arrived on the scene in the person of Jesus Christ, and people aren't recognizing who He is. And in our scene this morning... People believe that it's their job to be judging Jesus and telling him how it is that he is to be living his life and living out his ministry as the Messiah. And they have it completely backwards. The irony and the sadness of this scene is that they don't realize the mistake that they're making. 
they are placing themselves in a position of judge over the judge of all the earth. We've been looking at the book of Luke on and off for several months, and today we find ourselves at the end of chapter 5. A quick overview of what we've covered so far in Luke chapter 1. Luke begins by setting the scene of Jesus' birth. We see two miraculous births set side by side. The miraculous birth of John the Baptist, born to an elderly couple who were past childbearing age. And the even more miraculous birth of Jesus, born to a virgin. God become man in the person of Jesus Christ through the miracle of the virgin birth. In chapter 2, we see his birth in Bethlehem, and it announced by angels, and him recognized by elderly people in the temple, but to not much pomp or circumstance. Jesus begins his ministry in chapter 3 as John the Baptist prepares the people to receive him. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and the Father declares, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The rest of chapter 3 is Jesus' genealogy showing us that he is the true descendant of Adam, truly human, but also the true descendant of Abraham and David. He is the true king that has been promised. In chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil showing that he is the new Adam who will conquer sin as promised in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Luke 3 and 4 and 5, Jesus begins his ministry showing his authority over sickness, over demons, and even over sin. As we saw the last time, Jesus declares his authority to even be able to forgive sins. Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied, and he is the man who would deliver God's people. But he's not just a man. He is both God and man. And in our passage this morning, at the end of Luke chapter 5 into Luke chapter 6, the tension between the religious leaders and Jesus is only growing. And they begin renewed attacks upon him. If you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. It's the main point from our text. The king has come with all authority to give joy and rest to his disciples. The king has come with all authority to give joy and rest to his disciples. And we'll be looking at this with three points. Jesus the bridegroom, Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath, and Jesus the king. Jesus the bridegroom, Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath, and Jesus the king. I pray this morning that we would embrace Jesus as king that we would find in him our joy and rest and follow him. Let's begin by reading the first part of our passage, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Follow along with me as I read aloud. This is God's word, Luke 5, 33 and following. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable 
No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Point number one, Jesus, the bridegroom. In the passage just before our own, Jesus has been celebrating with Levi, whom he had just called Matthew, also called Levi, to be his disciple. Levi was a tax collector, and he threw a a banquet for Jesus and invited all of his friends to come and to meet Jesus. And Jesus sat with them, and he ate with them, and he drank with them, and he spoke with them. Here's Jesus, the one who has come to save sinners, actually mixing and spending time with sinners. And the religious leaders are confused by this, and they accuse him of wrongdoing. And there in verse 30, you see, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, in this earlier passage that we looked at the last time we looked at Luke, is declaring that he has come for those who've realized their sin and their need for him, not for those who believe that they are righteous. If we believe that we are righteous, Jesus has nothing to offer us. He only can offer salvation to those who realize their sin, come to him in repentance, and find in him salvation from sin. The tension is beginning between the religious leaders who are sensing their authority threatened by Jesus And they're completely confused by the things that he's doing. He doesn't fit their pictures of what they thought their Messiah was going to look like. And this has already led to great violent reaction. In Nazareth in chapter 4, the people in the synagogue begin to try to kill Jesus. They take him out to a cliff and try to throw him off. Miraculously, he walks through their midst and is delivered. Jesus is not meeting their expectations of what a religious leader, a Jewish religious leader, would look like. He is different. You know, often we have this mentality of what a religious person would look like. Sometimes we can begin to think that all religions and all religious people are basically the same. And often we can see in the world that people tend to think that a religious person should look a certain way and act a certain way. And there was a particular... Um, picture that the Jews had of what a pious and holy and religious person should look like. And you see the things that they're expecting of their leaders. They're expecting them to be fasting and praying. They're expecting a certain kind of lifestyle of great self-denial. Many people with many different religions have pursued this course, a course of severe self-denial. Some have done this out of a love for God the desire to delight in him and to fast, to even withhold eating or perhaps even drinking for a time in order to draw near to the Lord and to delight in him as they pull away from the other delights of this world, even the good gifts of food and drink, in order to enjoy God more. Others will pursue such courses of self-denial simply to try to prove how holy they are. 
But either way, Jesus isn't meeting this picture of a person who is going through great self-denial. He's doing the opposite. He's spending time eating and drinking with people, and everyone is confused. He doesn't look like the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. He doesn't even look like the prophet John, who had just had his ministry and is now imprisoned, or their disciples. He looks completely different. And so they ask him, why are you eating and drinking when the other holy people in our midst are doing the opposite? They're fasting and praying. How does Jesus answer this question? Does he tell them that it's wrong to fast or to pray? No. And we're going to see later in our passage that Jesus actually spends one whole night doing nothing but praying. He does pray. How does he answer their question? He answers it by saying, you're not realizing who I am. I'm not just another prophet. Though I am a prophet, I'm so much more than that. I am the bridegroom himself. Now, if you have your Bible open in front of you, keep one finger here in Luke chapter 5 and turn with me to Isaiah 25. What is Jesus talking about when he's declaring himself to be the bridegroom? Well, turn back to Isaiah 25. And look at the prophecy made by the prophet Isaiah. 25 in verse 6. Look at what it says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see what Jesus is saying? This is me. I am here. I am God. Come in your midst. And I am bringing for you a rich feast. If you will only have eyes to see who I really am. The people were expecting a prophet and a Messiah, someone who would free them and deliver them and bring them into this feast. But Jesus doesn't do this by riding on a horse, wielding a sword, and delivering his people from the Romans. He does this by bringing this message of salvation, by coming to be this Savior. Now Jesus, one day, we read in the book of Revelation, will do this forever. He will wipe away tears from all of the faces of his people. He will one day destroy death and sickness and pain forever. One day there will be a day when he will do this forever. And while today is not yet that day, and even the day when he came and his first coming was not yet that day, he was the bridegroom. And while he was on earth, it was right for his disciples, his true disciples, to celebrate his presence and to enjoy fellowship with him. Do you know that God has designed true joy for his creation, that God actually created his people to know true joy and to be fully happy. I think often we as Christians can put off a view similar to the Pharisees here or even the disciples of John that true religion is all about suffering and pain and difficulty. And we as Christians can be discouraged people who have long faces and who always look serious 
Do you know God created us to be joyful and to have joy? He created us to enjoy a rich feast, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. That we were created by God to enjoy the kind of fellowship with Him that would literally fulfill us completely. You know, we were created for God to know Him and to be loved by Him and to find in Him complete joy. That's what God did when He created Adam and Eve in the garden. Rather than enjoying Him and His presence and delighting in the feast that is the fellowship with God that we were created for, Adam and Eve rejected God. They walked away from God. They thought we could make a better world for ourselves and find happiness away from God, and they sought it. But rather than finding the happiness they thought that they could find away from God, they found only misery. And worse than that, they were rejected by God and received the punishment and suffering that their sins deserved. God, in His kindness, though, has visited His people in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, has come in order to reconcile sinful humanity with our good and loving and holy God. And it is through Christ, the bridegroom who has come, that this feast can finally be enjoyed for those that would repent of their sins and come to Christ. Did you know that there is more joy than you could ever imagine to be found in a relationship with God through Christ? If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me hold out for you. There is joy awaiting you. There is a feast that you could never imagine and never come to the end of that can be found in a right relationship with your Creator God. Let me encourage you to come to Christ and find in Him all that you've ever desired and wanted. There is a sweet feast available to you. Jesus calls Himself the Bridegroom. And He says while He's here, it is right for his disciples to eat and to drink and to enjoy this meal. Let me encourage you Christians that we are in an interesting position now as Christians because Jesus says that when the bridegroom is taken away, his disciples will fast. When the the bridegroom is gone, when he dies and then is raised from the dead and then is ascended back to heaven, there will be a time when it will be right for his disciples to fast where we will be in this interesting position of finding our joy in Christ, but yet not yet having the full fulfillment of it, which will come in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're in a position where it's right for us both to be joyful, but also to be fasting and praying. To also be reminded of the fact that that feast is not here yet. The one who brings the feast, the bridegroom has come and he has secured this feast for us. But we are yet waiting for that feast to finally be fulfilled in the the, the supper of the Lamb, which is coming. It's interesting that Jesus is saying that it's going to be right for us at this time, in our day, to fast and pray. You know, fasting is something that Christians can take part in. But they should do it differently than the Pharisees did. The Pharisees fasted but they made sure that everyone knew that they were fasting because their big concern was that everyone knew how holy and how great they were with their great acts of self-denial. They were more concerned about how other people viewed them than they were about actually drawing near to the Lord. Jesus fasted 
in the desert when he was tempted of the devil. He spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting. It is right for us as Christians to find seasons in which we might fast. Fasting is a a season in which Christians can withhold eating in order to forget the pleasures of this world and to draw near to the Lord and find more pleasure in Him as we withhold from delighting in the things of this world. I wonder, Christian, if you have fasted recently, let me encourage you to consider doing it. Not just for diets. I know there's a lot of diets these days that hold out fasting as a wonderful way of losing weight in a short amount of time. If that's your motivation, you're not going to find fasting encouraging the way that Christ has intended it. Let me encourage you to consider fasting in order to heighten your delight in God and in Christ, to draw near to Him in fellowship, to find Him sweeter, perhaps to devote yourself to reading His Word and to prayer. Let me encourage you to be reminding yourself that we are in this interesting position of waiting for Christ to return. And in fasting, we can actually help our longing grow and delight more and more in Christ and be even more excited about His return. Jesus explains how their views of holiness and even their views of what righteousness looked like weren't going to fit with what it is that Jesus was bringing. He uses a couple of illustrations here in verses 36 to the end. One is the illustration of um, a patch on a garment. Look at verse 36. He told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Here we have an illustration from sewing and tailoring. If you're going to patch an old piece of clothing, an old pair of jeans, you need to use old fabric that's also been washed and used so that the new one, in all of its strength, doesn't tear the old. He says... Then a second illustration of wine and wineskins. They made wine in Jesus' day by literally putting the grapes in uh, the skins of animals. But it would have to be new and fresh skins, newly butchered. Otherwise, if it was old and dried out leather, when they put the wine in and through the fermenting process, it stretched the skins, they would burst and the wine would be destroyed. What's Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that even the old forms of the law, even the old forms of righteousness, aren't able to bear what it is that Jesus is bringing in his new covenant ministry. That what Jesus is bringing is actually the fulfillment of everything that has come before. And what he's bringing is something brand new. And they need to have eyes and ears and minds open to understanding who he is and what he's bringing. Jesus is not just like the other religious leaders. He's completely different. And we must have the ability to embrace what is new. I wonder if you have a view of Jesus that is small or even in some way domesticated. Jesus is going to be destroying your vision of who he is and who he should be. He's not like any other religious leader, and he isn't like any other religion. What he comes and what he brings is something brand new. Are you ready to receive it? 
That's point number one, the bridegroom. Point number two, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Point number two, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. We'll begin in chapter 6 and verse 1. Read verses 1 to 5. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here the religious leaders are accusing Jesus' disciples as they go through the fields on a Sabbath day, taking a stroll, and begin snacking on some grain. The religious leaders, the Pharisees here, are accusing them of working on the Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, God established the Sabbath day at creation. For in six days he created the world, and on the seventh he rested. And in the Sabbath, he established for his people and for his creation a cycle of work and then of rest. He didn't do it because he needed to rest, but because we do. And he established for us a pattern of working hard, but then of taking a moment to rest every week. This was then built into the Old Testament law code, and God required for his people to rest, to rest from their labors and their work on the Sabbath. Now what happened is the religious leaders, over a period of many years, even centuries, as rabbis were trying to answer questions of their people, what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath, and what is it that I can or can't do on a Sabbath these religious leaders began putting together lists of the kinds of things you could or couldn't do on a Sabbath day and what it is that did or didn't constitute work. In fact, by Jesus' day, there was a list of 39 categories of things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And rather than embracing the Sabbath as a good gift from God to help his people to rest in him and to demonstrate their trust in him, they turned the Sabbath into a strict experience in which people were in fear of doing something wrong. Rather than enjoying the rest that God had secured for them in the Sabbath, they had turned this into a legalistic code. It's interesting how Jesus answers this. I wonder how you would answer this if you heard this accusation. I think I would tend to answer it, no, you're wrong. This thing, eating this grain as a snack, this isn't harvesting. I'm not, I'm not a farmer harvesting, trying to get some work in, some extra work in on the Sabbath day. These are former fishermen and tax collectors who are now poor and itinerant preachers who are taking a snack, as is allowed in the law, for the poor to eat a bit on the edges of the fields. God secured an opportunity for poor people to eat in the fields. I would want to prove them wrong. Jesus actually does something much bigger and greater. He actually questions their reading of the whole Bible and the way that they approach it. He's actually saying your approach to the Sabbath and to reading the law itself doesn't account for the Scripture itself. See, what he says is, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? We heard about this just a few weeks ago from 1 Samuel. 
David ate at the hand of the priests bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And the remarkable thing about that passage is God's anointed one, David, does something that is unlawful according to the law, and yet the scripture does not condemn him for it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you have a view of the law and of the Sabbath that actually doesn't account for all of scripture. How is it that David did this and was not condemned by scripture? You know that when David did other things, he was condemned by Scripture. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, the Lord was greatly displeased by his sin. And God went on to punish David for this. David went through great consequences for his sin, though God did forgive him. But in this passage, the passage of David eating the bread that is only allowed for the priests, Scripture does not condemn him. What Jesus is saying here is they are misunderstanding the point of the law. and They're misunderstanding how it is that we should be relating to the law. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus then makes an incredibly strong statement of his authority in verse 5. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now what is Jesus doing here? He is declaring his authority in a profound way. You know, Jesus says things. That would be wrong for a mere man to say on a regular basis in the Gospels. He says things like this. The kind of thing that only God is allowed to say. And yet Jesus says it. Like he did in chapter 5. He forgives a man's sin as if the offense was against him. Which it was because he's God. Here he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. How can Jesus be the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, because he's God. The one who gave the law. They are coming to God himself and telling him that he's guilty of wrongdoing and him and his disciples and how they treat the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, no, you've misunderstood who I am. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. By saying this, he is declaring himself to be the lawgiver. But I think he's doing something much more. Not only is he the one who has given the Sabbath as a good gift in the law to his people, He's also declaring that the Sabbath serves him because he is its Lord and master. Meaning that he isn't here to serve the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is there to serve him. You see, the Sabbath is to be a picture to help us understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the true Sabbath rest, and he has come to give rest to his people. You see, the Sabbath, the point of it all, is that God offers a rest to his people. The book of Hebrews holds this out so clearly that Christ himself, as the Lord of the Sabbath, offers a rest to his people. He and he alone offers salvation to his people if we will embrace him as the true king. This is the gospel message. The gospel message that Jesus has come not to destroy or to condemn, though we would deserve it, But he has come to offer a rest to his people. To offer for us in our salvation a rest from our attempts at good works. And even a rest from our sin. Which destroys us. Jesus offers us a true Sabbath rest in a relationship with him. This can only be found through repentance and faith. Jesus secures this for his people. As he says in Matthew chapter 11. 
he says at the end of a section in which he is uh, talking about the fact that his father has handed over all authority to him. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus talks about these religious leaders and he says that rather than showing kindness and mercy to the people, instead of that, he says, you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves don't lift a finger to help them. These religious leaders are doing the opposite of what Jesus is offering here to lift their burdens, the burden of their sin and of their attempts to save themselves. And Jesus offers them rest, rest for their souls. In the book of Matthew, chapter 11, as he declares this offer at the end of Matthew, chapter 11, and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The very next thing that Matthew records is then Jesus declaring himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, this is the point. Jesus offers a rest for your souls. I wonder this morning how you tend to view the Christian life. I wonder if you can tend to be overly burdened like these leaders of Jesus' day or like the people under them. I wonder if you feel particularly burdened this morning by all of the things that you should be doing and aren't or all of the things that you're leaving undone. I wonder if you feel particularly burdened this morning. Do you know Christ has come to lift those burdens? Do you know that he has come? in order that you might learn from him and walk with him. and He promises to give you help. Do you know he has come to lift the greatest burden, the burden of your sin, and then to free you from the penalty and power of that sin? And he now frees you to live the life you were always meant to live by walking with him, alongside him. As he talks about this being like a yoke, he's next to you as two Uh, oxen would be pulling a great load. He's there next to you saying, take my yoke upon you and I'm going to carry this burden with you. You Jesus has come to lift burdens and not to create them. I wonder if you might be the kind of Christian who actually burdens others rather than helping to lift burdens and to encourage others and help them in their load where perhaps you're tempted to add burdens to them, to be telling them all the things that they should be doing or all of the right way to do things. As you know, this is not what Christ has called you to do. We're not to be those who are unnecessarily burdening others with a certain kind of Christianity that turns into a religion with a whole list of rules. But rather, we are to be pointing our brothers and sisters in Christ to Christ and His help and the Spirit and realizing that in our weakness, we can rely on Him and He will then change us and help us to live a life that is pleasing to him, and that begins to look like Christ. Let me encourage you, Christian, to not be like these religious leaders burdening others, but to find your own burdens lifted in Christ and then to do the same work here in this congregation. That's uh, verses uh, 1 to 5. Look on Jesus still in point number 2, Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath. He then demonstrates his authority to declare this in verse 6 and following. 
Similar to when he declared that he had forgiven a man's sins and then did the miracle of raising the paralyzed man to prove that he had the authority to do it, Jesus does the same thing in our passage. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus here demonstrates his authority and proves that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, he heals. These people with their list of rules about what it is that you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath were declaring to Jesus, you are, you are not allowed, you have no right to heal because that's work on the Sabbath day. And they are accusing Jesus of wrongdoing. Imagine this. It would be laughable if it wasn't so scary. These people are accusing Jesus of wrongdoing while he heals a person with a withered hand. Rather than having mercy and compassion on the one who is hurting and in need, they are accusing Jesus of wrongdoing. A fascinating scene. You see what Jesus does. He doesn't, he doesn't hide in the corner and heal him so that nobody sees it. He stands up in front of everyone, and then he looks around at all of them, and he asks these accusational questions. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy? And the irony is, they then go on to plan to destroy Jesus' life right afterwards. They actually break the Sabbath and the point of the Sabbath. By doing evil on the Sabbath, they are planning and plotting a murder. They are ready to kill Jesus because he's threatening their power and control. I wonder what it will be like for these religious leaders on the day when they finally stand before Christ and they have to confess that there was a first judgment day in which their judge accused them with questions and they refused to listen. There is in this scene a picture of what that final judgment will look like in which God will question us and we must answer him. Do you know that the day is coming, non-Christian? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here, and you are always welcome. And we want you to know this Jesus who brings joy to any that would come to him and feast with him. But do you know that one day you will, whether you want to or not, stand before Christ? Christ, the one who is the king and the judge with all authority, will question you, and you must answer him. Do you know you can be prepared for that day? by repenting of your sins and trusting in Him, finding in Him forgiveness for all of these sins. And you will be welcomed on that day, not judged and condemned, but welcomed into the feast. But do you know you must be prepared for that judgment day because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. This is a frightening scene, a scene in which these religious leaders were not ready for, and they refused to listen. There will be many, even that saw Jesus himself in the flesh, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, 
who walked away from him. We must be ready for that judgment day by repenting of our sins and coming to Christ and finding in him salvation for all of our sins. I wonder, even Christian, if you are struggling yourself with judging God, I wonder if there are things in your life that aren't working out the way that you expected. I wonder if you, whether you would be honest, would admit that you often are questioning God and his rightness and goodness in the decisions that he's made and his sovereignty over your life. I wonder if you, like Job, or even like these religious leaders, find yourselves accusing God of doing something wrong rather than trusting him and trusting that he has good intended for you in his sovereign control over your life. Let me encourage you, Christian, to not put yourself in the position of a judge when it comes to your God, but to trust him, to realize that he has good in store for you eternally and even now if you are willing to, to come to him and to follow him and to trust him. That's point number two. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Point number three, Jesus, the King. Point number three, Jesus, the King. These people are accusing Jesus of not being a religious enough. Well, look at what Luke records beginning in chapter 6 and verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. See that Jesus did pray. He did even fast. He didn't fit their stereotypes, though, of the kind of Messiah they were looking for. But he did pray. Do you know that Jesus prayed? God himself in human flesh spent all night in prayer. It looks like he's preparing in preparation for this final time where he would collect the twelve and choose who the twelve might be. And he is seeking guidance from the Holy Spirit and from his Father. But he spent all night in prayer. He pulled an all-nighter. I wonder the, the last time you pulled an all-nighter. I wonder what it was for. Was it for prayer? Have any of us ever pulled an all-nighter for prayer? You know, this is what Christ did. And he leaves for us an example of the kinds of people we should be. The kinds of people that rely on God and delight in communing with him. Matthew Henry talks about Christians should be ashamed that non-Christians are up at night and lose sleep to delight in sin. And how often we will not lose sleep even for a little bit of prayer. I love this picture of Jesus. Let me encourage you, Christian, to delight in prayer, to plan for prayer. Uh, Tim Keller said recently that uh, one thing social media will prove for us is that our lack of prayer had nothing to do with time. The amount of time that we can spend in all kinds of other things proves to us that we do have time for things like prayer. It's just that we prioritize other things. Let me encourage you, Christian, to find a bit of the delight of this feast that we will one day have in fellowship with God forever and with His Son, Jesus Christ, to be feasting in your relationship with God through prayer, to be drawing near to Him in His Word and prayer, to do this alone, to do this perhaps husband and wife with your spouse, to do it with your family, to do it with your brothers and sisters in Christ and discipleship relationships. Let's be a people of prayer like Jesus was, delighting in God and delighting in drawing near to him. And look at what Jesus does as the king. 
he calls disciples and he names them apostles, verse 13. And when day came, after this all-nighter of prayer, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus called different people earlier in the book, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Levi, but it looks like there was then a moment where he decided, these are the twelve that I'm going to call to follow me and to be with me for the next three and a half years of my ministry. You look at what Jesus does as the king. Does he wield his authority from a distance and keep his distance from his people? No, as the king, he actually calls people to come and to be with him and to enjoy his presence, to learn from him, to not only hear his teaching, but actually to watch his life. Jesus, as the king, brings his people into his very counsel and into his very life. And we as his disciples, though we're not among the twelve, can be those that learn from Jesus, that know him, not only by his teaching and his word, but also by his life. And who then can be appointed by him to be apostles. The word apostle means something like a messenger or an ambassador or a delegate, someone that is appointed to represent another and to bring a message on their behalf. That's what these 12 disciples did, other than Judas, who then got replaced with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Jesus established these particular 12 to be apostles in a unique way, and he used them to establish the church and to lay the foundation for many of them to actually take part in writing the New Testament. God used these people, Christ used these people to be his representatives to the world. This is what King Jesus does with his authority. He brings people in and he gives them joy and rest so that they can learn from him. And then he commissions and appoints them to do great works on his behalf. And what I love about the book of Acts, I just finished reading it again this week. What I love about the book of Acts is it isn't just the 12 or the 11 that become his delegates there in the early church. All kinds of people become his delegates. You have deacons of that first church, Jerusalem, going and declaring the message to the unreached. You have just regular members as they're persecuted and scattered declaring the gospel. Do you know all of Jesus' disciples should be in some way his ambassadors? As 2 Corinthians makes so clear, we are to be his ambassadors declaring his gospel to a world in need of him. And we are to be declaring the message in this way, be reconciled to God. Christ, as the true king, brings his disciples into his life and he changes them. He makes them new. He teaches them and shows them who he is. He saves them, delivers them from their sin, and then he commissions them to be his representatives in the world. You know, this is what we are to be as Christians, Christ's representatives to a world in need of salvation. We are to be like these apostles representing Christ to a watching world. I wonder how you are representing Christ to those around you. I wonder if you are taking advantage of opportunities to talk about Christ with family and friends, co-workers and neighbors. If 
you are embracing this role that God calls, Christ calls all of his disciples to take part in, of being a messenger and a representative. You know, we can do this individually by evangelism and discipleship, by preaching the gospel to those in need of it. You know, we can even do this corporately by the way that we love each other and relate to each other and perhaps even bring non-Christian friends and co-workers into such relationships. Let me encourage us, as much as we are doing this, as we hear in every evening service each month of the evangelism that is taking place, praise God for it, but let's do it all the more. Let's be those that are commissioned by Jesus the King and represent him well to a watching world. In conclusion, I wonder, as the title of this sermon states, are you a judge or are you a disciple? Do you find yourself in a place of accusing God, maybe even accusing religion or even accusing Christ of wrongdoing? Or are you a disciple? You are only going to be one of two kinds of people in the end. A judge or a disciple. Let me encourage you. Come to Christ. Find your joy in Christ. Find your rest in Christ. Find Christ to be your good and loving King and then be commissioned by Him to represent Him to a world in such desperate need of Him. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that the King has come with all authority to give joy and rest to His disciples. Thank you that you have called sinners like us, great sinners like us, to experience such good and full joy in Christ, to experience rest from our sin and from our labors, and to find in Christ the true King worthy of leaving everything behind for and of being assigned a new mission, of being commissioned by Him to represent Him to this watching world. We pray you would use vessels like us in your eternal work of declaring your gospel to the nations. We pray we would be the kinds of people that reflect such rest, such joy, and such humility. We pray you would use us to encourage one another and to preach the gospel until Christ returns and the feast is inaugurated, a feast that will last forever. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.